This is a really big anniversary year for Canada. Coming up, TV host Rick Mercer wants to make sure that his neighbors in the USA know a few things about his country that he's pretty sure they aren't aware of. I would guess that that comes as a shock to most Americans, that Canada's actually physically larger. Author Sarah Vowell explores how the Hawaiian Islands became American territory. She explains why not everybody at the time thought it was a great idea. I don't know that Hawaiians will be particularly excited about me saying this. And hear how the luck of the she-wolf brought an unexpected win for Anna Piperato's team in the Palio horse race in Tuscany. Our jockey does a brilliant move. He moves on the inside, and everyone is going absolutely crazy. I have goosebumps right now. My heart is pounding. We won after 27 years. Feel the passions of Italy, get friendly with Canada, and grapple with American history in Hawaii in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's prime time for summer holidays, and you can celebrate a few of them with us today on Travel with Rick Steves. Canadian TV host Rick Mercer joins us for this year's big Canada Day observance in a bit. And we'll hear what it's like to win the famous Palio horse race in Tuscany. It was only a few days after the 4th of July in 1898 when Hawaii became an American territory. Author Sarah Vowell investigates how it happened in her book, Unfamiliar Fishes. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. So when we think about Hawaii, pretty clear in your book, 1898 is a huge date. Why is that? It's really just the summer of 1898. We've kind of become an empire almost overnight. And and that uh, was the summer of the Spanish-American War when we annexed Cuba and Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, and Hawaii gets kind of jumbled in there. All of those places are islands, and a lot of it was about establishing naval bases. and yeah, places, Guantanamo and Pearl Harbor in Guantanamo the same Guantanamo Bay. That was when I think the United States became the country it is now, as opposed to the one at its founding. Not that those guys weren't imperialistic, too, but... <laughs> but that really was imperial America at its, in a way, in its zenith in 1898, when we looked yeah. at the world, and a little subtitle of your book almost is When Manifest Destiny Got a Sunburn. <laughs> Get us up to speed on that. Explain Manifest Destiny and how to get a sunburn. Well, the idea of Manifest Destiny is the idea that, like, the white people have almost this directive from their God to populate the continent of North America. So Manifest Destiny, the original white Christian Americans, mm-hmm. it's ordained almost by God that that should be ours. That was their thought, yeah. There were some people living in the middle Uh, bits that kind of had a bone to pick with this idea. But even before that, before the Oregon Trail and all of that, fairly early in our history, really, in um, 1820, the first New England missionaries set off from Boston Harbor to Christianize the the savages. The sandwichers. Mm-hmm, yeah. And so those people kind of made um, the Hawaiian islands as Bostonian as possible. They wanted it to be Christian and Protestant, and they set up these missions. And, I mean, the other thing that was happening at that exact moment was this other group of New Englanders, the whalers, who also started showing up in the Sandwich Islands for R&R. So you have basically the Saturday night and Sunday morning of New England just kind of 
storming the beaches of the Hawaiian Islands at the exact 1820. same time. 1820. Mm-hmm, 1820. Hawaii. Welcome yeah. to America. Yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the whalers, they want to meet some girls. They want to have some liquor. And the, you know, the uh, puritanical missionaries. So party poopers from the whalers' point of view. Yeah, definitely. And the missionaries, it's these missionaries, the ones who stuck around, it's their children and grandchildren who go on to overthrow the Hawaiian queen and start the sugar plantations and completely change the islands. But before we get to that, I mean, these missionaries, because their descendants kind of from the native point of view, wrecked Hawaii, get a bad rap. But one thing they did, because they're Protestant missionaries, that's all about reading the Bible. And so in order for the Hawaiians to read the Bible, these missionaries had to teach the Hawaiians how to read. The idea was these missionaries would teach uh, people about Christianity and to read in their own native languages, except there wasn't a written Hawaiian language. So these Hawaiian missionaries the missionaries to Hawaii, I should say, from New England, they first created the Hawaiian written language. Then they translated the Bible into Hawaiian. Then they basically taught within one generation the entire population of the Hawaiian Islands to read. But was it fundamentally religious imperialism or was it political imperialism kind of disguised as that? Or was the religious group doing their religious work? The idea of being a missionary is imperialistic in that you're just spreading out around the world, showing up and telling the locals, guess what, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Here's the good news. At first, it was just religious. Later on, those missionaries' descendants, it became political. So the political, the, the military strategic value of Hawaii wasn't seen at first, but it came in later. Right. And then we've got uh, illiterate populace. Yeah, it's possible that, you know, by the 1830s, the Hawaiian Islands were the most literate place on Earth. Is that right? Possible. Best-selling author Sarah Vowles, our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. She investigates the drama behind the Americanization of the Hawaiian Islands in her book, Unfamiliar Fishes. Sarah's latest title describes how France's Marquis de Lafayette helped to heal a divided United States after a particularly nasty presidential election. It's called Lafayette in the somewhat United States. So 1898, Hawaii becomes a colony. Did they join us or did we annex them? We annexed them much to their dismay, to the native dismay. And then move way ahead to when was it that Hawaii became a state? 1959. Was it pretty enthusiastic? Everybody wanted to get on board or was there a element There's always wanted... been a healthy segment of the native Hawaiian population who has never considered the annexation, much less statehood, a legitimate act and still to this day protest the annexation and statehood. To this day? Oh, yeah the sovereignty movement. I I hung out with a lot of these people. They were very instrumental for me in terms of doing my research because I learned so much from them. Like a lot of people who have a bone to pick with history, they're very well informed and they're ready to share their knowledge, you know. Where do you meet these people? I went to some of their meetings. They have meetings. Really? Um, They have protests. So there's a a recognition of their ancestral independent past. For sure. And and they keep that alive. And... What's the British flag doing on the on the Hawaiian flag? There's a little tiny Union Jack in it, isn't there? There was a period where they, I mean, the Hawaiian royals at some point, you know, that was their first contact with Westerners was the British Royal Navy when James Cook, quote unquote, discovered uh, the Hawaiian Islands when he landed on Kauai. 
And there was a period when the Hawaiian monarchy was much more enamored with Great Britain. I think they weren't the United States. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and also they were the monarchs. Like one of them was in touch with Queen Victoria and they okay. had that, like, the monarchy in common. Uh, okay, so they had a little royal affinity going on there. I mean, another From... thing that one of the further developments that, you know, these missionaries, their children and grandchildren started these sugar plantations, and this completely changed everything about the island, these plantations, because it changed the ecology, obviously, but also the racial makeup of the islands because they were bringing in workers from hmm. Korea, China, Japan, Norway, Portugal. And because all of these people were working the plantations, you know, they would share their food. So to me, like the great symbol of modern Hawaii is the plate lunch, where it's, you know, usually some kind of Asian or Polynesian protein, Kahlua pig or teriyaki chicken or mahi-mahi, two scoops of Japanese rice and macaroni salad. Of course. And so <laughs> and so to me, like Where'd the that macaroni salad idea, come from? From, you know, <laughs> the white people in the war and all that. But um to me it's almost like my ideal of America is the menu board at the Rainbow Drive in Waikiki because you can get a hot dog, you can get mahi mahi, you can have a plate lunch, you can have <laughs> uh Japanese style chicken, you know, it's kind of my ideal of America almost because it became this sort of weird melting pot. Okay, so you can you can get the melting pot in the cuisine. What about just flat-out sightseeing? Are there artifacts from King Kamehameha time or whatever? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, there are great places to go. I mean, there's an excellent museum in Honolulu, the Bishop Museum, which has a lot of um, artifacts from the era of the Hawaiian Kingdom and thereafter. There's the old palace, the Iolani Palace, which is the only palace in the United States. And that predates 1898. Yeah, it was the home of the last king and queen who were brother and sister there are so many historic sites that are, are just stunning. Like, there's this one valley in Maui, the Eo Valley? Yeah, Eo. Yes. It's where King Kamehameha, who, quote-unquote, united the Hawaiian people by bringing all these disparate islands under his domain. It was this very fierce battle where it was called the damming of the waters because so many people from Maui were killed that dammed up the river there. But it's it's one of the most beautiful places in the Pacific, I think. So you have opportunities to gain a, an appreciation, to have an Im- be impacted by the heritage yeah, and history. Yeah, you can go to Kealakakua Bay, which is where poor old Captain Cook was killed. There's this wonderful place. Mark Twain went there on his trip to Hawaii called the Place of Refuge on the Big Island, which in the old days, you know, if someone was about to be... Uh, executed, if they ran to this one place, they were safe. And it's just this beautiful place on the water there that um, you can sit on the rock where Mark Twain sat. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Val. We're talking about her book, Unfamiliar Fishes, that talks about Hawaii and the centuries-long dynamic between imperialists, between missionaries, between colonialism between uh, globalization and a fragile but enduring Hawaiian heritage. Sarah, if you are going with a traveler or a friend and you wanted to go to one spot that really, where you're feeling the richness of the Hawaiian heritage before it became, you know, a state in the United States, where would you go and why? To me, always the most beautiful places on the islands are inland. You know, Mm. when the Hawaiians are giving uh, directions 
they'll always say it's one of two directions. It's either Mauka or Makai, meaning toward the mountain or toward the sea. And if you go on Oahu, if you go uh, Mauka, there's this one valley where it's not even really marked. You have to really look this up. But it, it was the uh, the summer palace of Kamehameha Third, And it's sort of in the middle of this bamboo grove. And it's in ruins. I guess sort of visually, it's the Hawaii, you know, from the television show Lost, where, you know, the sound of the bamboo hitting each other, kind of like marimbas. And and there's this, you know, remnants of this old summer palace where the old Hawaiian royals would go. And it's that volcanic landscape and a little bit of the jungle, so it's a little bit dark and dark green. Sounds like my, my primeval Hawaiian dream come true. Exactly where is that? It's on Oahu. You have to look for it. It's in Nuuanu Valley. I don't know that Hawaiians will be particularly excited about me saying this. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's kind of, I remember telling one Native Hawaiian gentleman, you know, how wonderful I thought this place was and why isn't there a plaque and a parking lot and everything? And, and so people could, you know, visit it. And he just said, oh, they'll just ruin it. Right. Well, they've got some history to, to give them that, that perception. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Sarah Val about her book, Unfamiliar Fishes, about the story of Hawaii. Sarah, thanks. Thank you, Rick. There's more about Hawaii with Sarah Vowell in an extra to this week's show. You can listen from our weekly show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll celebrate a spirited win at the Palio Horse Race in Italy in just a bit. But next, we mark this year's big Canada Day anniversary with one of Canada's top TV personalities, Rick Mercer. We're at 877-333-RICK. When you live within shouting distance of the Canadian border like I do, you tend not to think of Canada as a foreign country, just a neighbor who does a few things differently than you do. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. My mother grew up in Canada, and some people say they can hear that in how she taught me how to talk. But I still don't really know all that much about Canada. Since our Canadian neighbors are celebrating 150 years as a country right now, we've invited one of Canada's leading TV personalities to help define for the rest of us what it means to be Canadian in this big anniversary year. Rick Mercer travels across his country to engage in wacky stunts and to meet Canadians who are making a difference, even in out-of-the-way places. His weekly Rick Mercer Report airs on CBC Television. He joins us from their studios in Toronto right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, Rick. It's great to be here. So this is a big year in Canada, uh, July 1st, it is. Uh, 150. Wow, congratulations. It is. It's a big one. We've been celebrating like crazy, although I loved everything you said in that introduction until you said he will help define what it means to be Canadian, because that is a question <laughs> that has confounded Canadians since the beginning of time. Oh, and I thought there was an easy answer. No, there's, this is a question <laughs> I've been trying to answer for the last 14 years on my show, and I'm more confused by it now than ever before. It's one of the differences. We don't have mom, the flag, and apple pie. We just don't have it. That's true. You got the loon, and you got the maple leaf, and you got sure, hockey. Uh, oh, we've got lots of things. But, you know, <laughs> I think if you asked an American, top three, they'd say mom, the flag, and apple pie. Whereas we would just have a long debate. We would, you know, strike a committee. We would, there would be an investigation. We just, we couldn't agree on a single thing. But you'd have a polite debate, and you'd probably break away from it as friends, wouldn't you? <laughs> I would like to think it would be polite. We'd follow the Robin's Rules of Order, all that business. But yes, we would still never, ever... You know, there is a... In the Parliament buildings, where I will be broadcasting from on Canada Day, there is the Hall of Honor. And the Hall of Honor, 
it's a beautiful, beautiful room inside of those parliament buildings and etched into these walls were going to be the names of great Canadians. When they went to etch the first name, they said, well, will it be a French man or will it be an English man? And then will it be uh, uh, someone from the West or will it be someone from, you know, the East? And then, and the debate went on and on and on. And to this day, there is not a single name on that wall. Wow. I didn't. So there is that. That's the way we roll. That's the way we roll. Yeah. On this 150th birthday for Canada, how are Canadians feeling about their country? Uh, You know, we're, we're quite at a little bit of a crossroads south of the border here. What's the feeling about the flag and being patriotic and Canada? Is is it a good time? I think it is a good time. I think uh, I'm 47 years old. For the most of my life as a young person, as a young adult, there was always the threat that Canada could break up. You know, I lived through a number of of referendums, Quebec threatening to separate. Mm -hmm. There was a, you know, a serious political movement for a big part of my political life. You know, at one point, the, the official opposition was a Quebec separatist party. There is no real separatist party anymore in Canada. So on that file, on the surface, in terms of we are unified, that has kind of ceased to be a threat. And that's a big deal to the Canadian psyche. I think... We are looking at what's happening south of the border, and I'm preparing to be incredibly diplomatic now. Uh, we're, we're looking at what's happening south of the border, and we're relieved that we haven't gone that route. I'm not saying that we couldn't at any point. I don't think there's anything that can happen in the United States that can't happen in Canada. But, uh, you know, we're one of the last strong liberal democracies on earth. We have a, a prime minister that, you know, believes in climate change and believes in new technology and public broadcasting, for mm-hmm. example. So we're, we're feeling pretty good, I think. One of the interesting things happening around the world is that Donald Trump took the heat off every other politician that, you know, Merkel and uh, Trudeau and and the leader in Australia and England, everyone like up in arms about this president, Donald Trump, at the same time, you know, they, they must be thanking their lucky stars because he's sucking all of the oxygen out <laughs> of every country on earth. It doesn't matter what my prime minister is doing. People are going, well, thank God we don't have someone like this guy. You know, in America, we have uh, a lot of people are, are feeling um, unheard. Is there that, that's sort of the base of Donald Trump. Would a Donald Trump type candidate have a similar base in Canada? Is there that division, even if it's a little more mellow? You know, we had, did just have a, a conservative leadership race up here, and the conservatives are about as close to the Republicans as you could get in Canada. And we did have a Trump-like character who came in and instantly became the front runner. Uh, the parallels were pretty large. Kevin O'Leary, he's on Shark Tank in the United States, and he was on a similar show in Canada. So he was a TV reality host, and, and he said he was going to shake things up, and, you know, he said he was going to fire all sorts of people, and he said he was going to do things differently, and, you know, the only thing that mattered was the almighty dollar, and and he resonated. Now, he did not speak French, and he, he eventually dropped out right before the, the, the final vote, and he claimed that was the reason why, and that's as good a reason as any other reason in Canada. But he was certainly a front-runner in that party using Trump kind of lines. Is that a big deal to be viable as a national candidate to speak French in Canada? Well, it's obviously not a requirement in terms of any, you know, it's not written down on paper, but I think we've reached a point where no credible national party would elect a leader that can't speak French. Wow. That's a or speak English, for that matter. Right. Well, you know, we have two official languages. It might yeah. be hard for Americans to understand that, but we do have two official languages. I, I think it's safe to say, and yeah, yeah. there will be no prime minister who's not fluent in both languages. But, you know, all of our prime ministers have been. Even the previous one, Stephen Harper, 
he learned late in life, but he certainly was fluent in both languages. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with the host of Canada's Rick Mercer Report, and we're looking at what it means to be Canadian today as the country celebrates 150 years as a nation. To learn more about Rick Mercer and his work, you can go to his website at rickmercer.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Bill is calling in from Clarence Center in New York. Bill, thanks for your call. Thanks for taking my call, Rick. I was just simply wondering how you see the differences or the similarities between the Canadian and the U.S. societies. I've always thought that the Canadian society was, well, more polite, kinder, gentler, not as racist or violent. And if you could elaborate a little on that and maybe explain the, and I never really understood the Canadian election process and how you call elections. I always feel uncomfortable talking about the differences because I always think it's very important to point out that there are so many similarities. As I said, I don't think there's there's anything that can really happen in the United States that can't happen in Canada. And sometimes we have to stand on guard if we determine that that is something that we don't want to happen, like, say, Donald Trump, which I think the majority of Canadians would not like to see. But there are a lot of similarities. I think there are other stereotypes that we are polite. Certainly, I'd like to think we're polite. But, you know, Canadians have often felt a little comfortable being a little holier than thou when it comes to uh, looking at the United States. Canadians were odd. You know, when you, you talk about what it means to be a Canadian, well, I can tell you, like, very quickly, if you talk about what it means to be a Canadian, and this is not something I'm proud of, but very quickly, Canadians will start talking about how we are different than the United States. And generally, the first thing is health care. And after that, I don't think the differences are that grand. You know, the gentleman mentioned racism, and we have our own systematic systems of racism, and we have a, you know, a, a terrible history dealing with our indigenous people, something that, you know, we're, we're trying to desperately to fix, but it's, there's no easy fixes. But by and large, I also think positively about the United States and Canada at the same time. So, you know, I, I feel incredibly lucky to be born in Canada, to live in Canada. I feel for what you're going through as a country for the first time in my life. I mean, I never, ever felt, boy, I'm glad I'm not American. I ne that never, ever crossed my mind in my life. It kind of has as of late, but I realize this too will pass. So it's just a temporary feeling, I think. I'd love to explain to Bill, of course, how our system works, but I can tell you if I start explaining yeah. the British parliamentary system, oh, no, no. you know, I'll be here all day and everyone will be kind of very confused. I mean, the bottom line is in Canada, you don't vote for the prime minister, which is our president. You know, you don't, you do, you go into your, the ballot box and you think I'm supporting Justin Trudeau, but you, you actually don't vote for that guy. That guy doesn't appear. I walk into the ballot box, you know, there's a half a dozen mm -hmm. parties, but there's three main parties. Let's say four, if you include the Greens. So we have the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, the NDP Party, and the Green Party. You vote for one of those people. If that person wins, they go to Ottawa. The party that sends the most members to Ottawa forms a government. And that party actually chooses who the leader is. So <laughs> we know when we vote Liberal, we're voting for Justin Trudeau. But in theory, you know, he's only the leader, the Prime Minister, because the Liberal Party have chosen him. They could fire him overnight, and there could be a new Prime Minister tomorrow that we don't vote for. And it's drilled into our heads as children. Like, when you go into the ballot box, you're voting for the local member of parliament, not who's going to be prime minister. But no one really thinks that way, to be fair. 
we tune into the national debate to see the leaders debate, you know, that, and quite often the entire campaign is on the backs of the leader. If you go back historically, we won our freedom from Britain with a violent revolution, and you guys had a meeting and you came to some sort of a agreement. I still remember my mother talking about how exciting it was when the Queen of England came to Vancouver, and it was one of the oh. highlights of her youth. She is the Queen of Canada, in fact, is the title. She is our head of state. Even today, um, young people would oh, get excited. Yeah, she, even <laughs> today. Oh, my God. Well, oh, the Queen came. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I, I met the Queen, and I can tell you, I've met lots of famous people in the Canadian universe, and I was tickled pink to meet the Queen. You know, Charles and Camilla's there in Canada for Canada Day, but also right. it would be unacceptable for them to not be here. Right. I mean, you know, it goes both ways. And, of course, Canadians are mad for the, the younger ones. Uh, oh, yeah, no, that's a big deal. Uh, there's certainly people who wouldn't cross the road, of course, to see the Queen, but, uh, oh, no, no, yeah. she's the Queen of Canada. It's a tale of two Ricks right now as we celebrate Canada's 150th birthday on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is nationally broadcast TV host Rick Mercer. He'll be hosting the 14th season of the Rick Mercer Report. That's Tuesday nights on CBC This Fall where he has fun reporting from towns all across Canada every week. Rick's also anchoring TV coverage of the big Canada Day festivities from Ottawa. His website is rickmercer.com. It's fascinating how there's a parallel world just north of our border, and I'm a, in public broadcasting, both radio and TV, and I know that, what, 90% of Canada gets access to PBS from America and NPR. Sure. But it can also go the other way a little bit, too, and... Have you thought about how the impact broadcasting from America has on Canada, but it's not quite fair on the two-way flow? Oh, it is not even close. Right. But, you know, it's not a question of fairness. It's a question of, you you know, 35 million to 350 million. It's just as simple as that. You know, we've always felt, when I said, you know, we felt a little bit holier than that, one of the reasons is that we just know so much more about your country than you know about ours. And when I did in the old days, when I used to do talking to Americans, that was the entire basis. It was one joke, basically. I would wander <laughs> around the United States and televise interviews with, with Americans about Canada that in Canada, people could not believe because Americans would believe anything about Canada. But of course, they didn't know anything about Canada. So they just thought, look, there's an honest looking guy and Canadians are apparently nice and straightforward. So clearly when he says that insulin is illegal in Canada, then clearly it is. And they would weigh in on the subject of whether or not we should legalize insulin. And they would just believe anything. And we just thought it was hysterical. But it's just <laughs> the same joke over and over again. The first time it ever aired, it was a segment in another TV show. It just took off. And when you're in comedy, you just know, like, this is, this is a segment that I'm just going to be able to continue doing. And my father called me. And he never really watched my show much, and he certainly never offered an opinion. And he said, I watched your show, and uh, I saw this thing you were doing called Talking to Americans, and a number of people have mentioned it to me. And I said, Dad, you wouldn't believe, like, the phone has went off the hook. People <laughs> love this thing. He said, yes. He said, promise me one thing. I said, what? He said, promise me you'll never, ever do that ever again. That's a <laughs> terrible thing to do to our friends. Oh my goodness. And of course, then I did nothing else for like six years because, hey, it's comedy. You know, you beat it like a rented mule if, you, if, it, <laughs> if it works. But uh, well, when I did it, it was so long ago, I thought, well, they'll never see it because it was pre-YouTube. Like I used right. to always think, yeah, sure, I'm making fun of these people on the street, but they'll never see it. It's you, in Canada. You can't think that anymore. No, All times right. have changed. But, you know, we grow up with, uh, you know, I grew up with like four TV channels. Well, three of them were American. There was NBC, ABC, CBS, right? So 
we knew everything about the United States. Whereas, yes, sure, the border might get some yeah. Canadian public television, but you're not getting, you're not getting it 24-7. But also, Rick, I think Canadians are better connected with the world because they don't see themselves as a hub where everybody relates to them rather than relations between other countries. Oh, there's no doubt. You know, we like to feel that we punch above our weight internationally on lots of files, but we never run around and say we're the best or we're the biggest. It's just not part of our psyche. I've always found it a little bit hysterical, and again, I'm being very diplomatic, but a little bit hysterical that America often believes that if they have it, it's the best. I mean, you see Donald Trump say this over and over again. Last week, he said, we will continue to be the most environmentally friendly country on the earth. And we go, we just find that hysterical. <laughs> but likewise, if he said, we have the best airports in the world, I think a lot of Americans would believe that. And then if you pick them up and drop them in France or in many European mm -hmm countries, they would freak when they saw the airports. I think a lot of Americans would believe you have the fastest trains just by the nature that they're in America, they must be the best. And clearly you don't. But I think Donald Trump could probably sell that message. And that is a unique American perspective that comes from being the biggest, absolutely, being the most important nation, being the leader of the free world, all of those things that you actually are. It just creates a bit of inward looking, I think. And we're, we're not that much better. I mean, I think we probably are, but then again, we can't take credit. It's just because we're, you know, one-tenth of the size population-wise. Mm -hmm. Also, my goodness, we're one-tenth the size spread out in a country that's bigger than the United States. Yeah. Again, I would guess that that comes as a shock to most Americans that Canada's actually physically larger. How does Canada celebrate Canada Day, July 1st? We, we have barbecues and, and we do parades and sing Yankee Doodle. What would we find if we were at a Canada Day celebration? You would find pretty much exactly that. You would find Canadians singing Oh Canada. You would see flags, uh, you know, on buntings. You'd see kids with the flag on their face, uh, barbecues, and uh, there'll be a lot of outdoor concerts and all of those things. I mean, we're, we're not that different. I'm trying to think of like one big difference. I'm trying to think, except we do, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank. It's pretty much the same. Your, your police have wonderful Mountie uniforms in their own horses. <laughs> Our federal police do, and yes, they will be resplendent in them. Now, just so you know, if you're ever pulled over by the RCMP, they will be in a car and they will be dressed as a regular police officer. They don't run around <laughs> in oh, those red suits. Oh, I thought they gallop up and go, no. excuse me, could you pull over? No, 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 no. <laughs> but if you go to a Canada Day celebration, you will see them. I mean, that's, that's not what they wear. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> when they're on, when they're investigating a crime or arresting you. But uh, <laughs> some of them do, and they all have that outfit, of course. They do. Hey, Rick, well, just happy Canada Day to all of our friends north of the border. And, and uh, please, share our gratitude, at least from a lot of us, for the sensibility that we get from Canada, because we get some beautiful reminders from Canada about civility and being a better part of the, the family of nations on this beautiful planet. Well, thank you. That's a very nice sentiment. And likewise, I would suggest that no matter what is happening current day in the United States and in Canada, I would suggest that the fact that we are, you know, we are the largest trading partners and we are the closest friend of the United States is never far from the minds of Canadians. And I never see that changing in my lifetime. That's a beautiful thing. And every time I cross the border, I'm thankful for that. Hey, Rick, thanks for joining us and best wishes. Thank you so much. Happy Canada Day. Happy Canada Day. In Canada. How's it going in Canada? Out and about in Canada. Oh, oh, oh. 
Besides his TV show on CBC, Rick Mercer is also going to be a host at the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal later this month. There's more about Rick Mercer in the radio section at ricksteves.com. In Tuscany, the big event this weekend is the running of the Palio Horse Race in Siena. It's where bareback riders race around the central Piazza del Campo, each representing the pride and honor of the city's rival neighborhoods. Anna Piperato explains why she'll never forget last year's race. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. There's another big event this weekend that we'd like to take you to on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Every July 2nd, and once again in August, the 17 neighborhoods of Siena in Italy compete in a bareback, anything-goes horse race around the town's central plaza. It's a tradition that dates back some 800 years. To say that the palio is the biggest thing of the year in Siena is probably an understatement. American-born Anna Piperata moved to Siena to earn her Ph.D., studying the role of St. Catherine of Siena in the art of the Middle Ages. Anna stayed and was eventually baptized into her own neighborhood association, the Contrada of the She-Wolf. Before last year's race, Anna explained to us that her neighborhood's team was an object of pity and the butt of jokes, since they hadn't won the polio since 1989. She hoped that being on Travel with Rick Steves might bring them some luck. Anna's back with us now to tell us about something completely unexpected that happened for her team in last year's Palio race. It's a big smile on your face when we talk about the Palio. What happened with your neighborhood last year? Well, yes, last year my face would have been still smiley, but not this smiley, because I have found myself in the Lupa Contrada, the Contrada of the She-Wolf. I am American, but I, I was adopted into this Contrada, baptized. I have my neck scarf and everything. And a Contrada is a neighborhood, A right? neighborhood. There are 17 in Siena, and had I chosen one, I probably would have chosen a different one because I did my PhD on St. Catherine of Siena, who was from the Goose. But fate put me in the Lupa, Fate put me in the Contrada that hadn't won in the longest amount of time. There's even a nickname for the losing one yes, like that. the nonna, so the grandmother, <laughs> the one closest to death. Because palio is a metaphor for life. Palio is life. And so the Contrada that wins is newly born, is reborn. And the Contrada that hasn't won in the longest amount of time is the grandmother, the closest to death. So I was in this deathbed of a Contrada. And last year, we had a bit of chaos, I'm not going to lie. We were without a captain. A captain is in charge of the palio, in charge of all the strategies uh, during the race. And so we happened to have, a, for the first time, a prior captain. The president of the Contrada was also the captain of the Contrada. We were destined to run in July of 2016. Destined to run, meaning there's 17 contrada, but only... Well, only 10 run 10 at a time. Run at a time. And so you're one of the 10 neighborhoods yes. that are in the horse race. Yes. And you've got to scramble to get the, the jockey and the horse all well, Yes, out. well, the horse is decided by fate. Everything is luck and fate in the palio. So we were assigned a strong young horse, Preziosa Penelope, precious Penelope, who had run one race, but she hadn't won, and we ended up getting a really great jockey, Scompiglio, which means confusion and chaos, Jonathan Bartoletti. He comes down and he promises to win, as all the jockeys promise to win. We don't always trust jockeys because they are mercenaries, and sometimes they could get paid more by another contrada to lose the race. So did, you, did you trust Jonathan? We put our hopes in Jonathan. We okay. really did. And uh, it worked out because guess what? We were in third place for the entire race. Oh, my God. Hold on. Back up. I'm sitting in the stands of the palio. My parents are there. 
for the first time ever. We get our position. Your position at the starting line is determined by fate. We are in position number three, a great position for our horse, for our jockey. But then who gets position number four? Our enemy. So our enemy immediately begins taunting our horse and our jockey, and we're just going crazy because, oh my gosh, this can't happen again. Taunting, actually hitting him with his stick? Actually hitting him with his whip. Because and this whip the, is not just any whip. What's it made of? It's a dried tendon. And it's stretched out and dried. <laughs> yes, it's so like, it's a whip, and it really hurts. I bet. And you can whip your horse, your enemy's horse, and other jockeys And that's well. legal. And that's legal. It's all legal. I understand the only rule is there are no rules. There are no... Well, you shouldn't really pull another jockey off a horse as happened last year or two years ago. Okay. But other than but that... But generally, anything goes. Anything it's just who goes. gets across the, exactly. the finish line first. Even a, a horse without a rider on exactly. it Exactly. And the last time Lupa won in 1989, our horse was without a rider, which is a beautiful victory because she wasn't tainted by the jockey, right? So we are in third position, and next to us is our enemy, the porcupine, and they start, you know, beating us and, oh, my gosh, making our horse go crazy. But the line drops, the rope drops, the race starts, and we are in third place for two and a half laps. And then at the final turn, our jockey does a brilliant move. He moves on the inside and... Everyone is going absolutely crazy. I have goosebumps right now. My heart is pounding. We won after 27 years. Mm. Absolute joy. I could not feel my feet for four hours afterwards. I don't know if that's normal. I lost a shoe in the piazza, but my mother found it afterwards. <laughs> Tears, screams, hugs, sweat, everything mixed together. It was the most fantastic emotion I have ever experienced in my entire the life. The jubilation. I was there. You I was were there. there. Yes. And I couldn't, I thought the crowd was going to rip the jockey to pieces. I, yes. I saw a little fear on the jockey's face. I, I really thought, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he, oh, he was hugged and kissed by more people than I can imagine. <laughs> now this is just, the whole race is like less than two minutes. Yeah, about a minute and a half, not even a minute and a half. And the whole city is packed in to the square. Yes. Take us, what was it like? Where were you sitting? I actually happened to be in the stands this time because my uh -huh. parents came and they said, uh -huh. we want to do this right, so we want to sit in the stands. So I had a fantastic position with them. Usually I'm in the center, but you can always find some a good site right. somewhere in the center. And it's, if you're a tourist, you can get there if you don't mind the crowds. No, you can yeah. line up and pile in there. You pile in there, 45,000 new friends, uh, but you actually do have room. <laughs> you can't leave, though. You, you can't leave once, once you're, you're in. No, unless you pass out, right. then the hospital will come and I, get I you. I saw that. Yes. They actually had a few cases because I was looking in a window. I was yes, lucky because I yes. had a special perch. And you could see uh, the ambulance. They, yes. could, they could take people out if necessary. Yes. But you're right there. Now, the race lasts for 90 seconds, yes. but the festival goes It for begins days. four days before, basically. Right. So we start our celebrations the night before the assignment of the horses. So on the July 2nd Palio, the horses are assigned on the 29th of June. For the 16th of August, you get your horse on the 13th of August. So the parties begin the nights before, because the night before the assignment of the horses, everyone's in good spirits because everyone has an equal chance of winning all the contratas that are running. Then you get your horse. Getting your horse is crucial because you can get a good horse, so and at this point, horse. some people are thinking, uh, it's hopeless, or yes. we are really in the inner, yeah, exactly. inner track for this. And you mentioned two different dates, so the palio happens twice yes. each each summer, what, once in July and once in August? July 2nd, August 16th. And you're the Nona, right? That's grandma? Yes. Your losing neighborhood actually <laughs> pulled off a capote. Yes, so this year was historic, not only because we, we gave away our old lady bonnet, quote-unquote, and we won the palio, but then on August 13th, I had just come back from a tour, 
I had literally just got back into my room when the assignment of the horses started. And I learned that Preciosa Penelope had been chosen to run again because the horses don't always run the same races. And then we got her again. So you got your horse and your jockey again. And then, of course, we got the jockey again. And we were so, oh gosh, jubilation, jubilation, jubilation. The day of the race arrives. We are in the ninth position at the starting gates. Two enemies are running, and so they're beating each other up. We have a clear start, but we don't, we're not in first place right out of the ropes. We are in second, third, fourth place, but then at the last lap, we come ahead and we win a capotto. Capotto means overcoat, but just in Sienese, it means when you win the July and the August Palio. So we went from dalla cuffia al capotto, from the old lady bonnet to the overcoat. And how often does it happen that the same neighborhood wins both races in a year? Very rarely. This is the first time in the 21st century. The last time was 1997 with the Giraffe District. Wow. And the time before that was 1933 when the tortoise, the Tartuja, ah. won. And they won with the same horse and jockey. But you see an easy follow this like we follow the Super yeah. Bowl or something like yes. that. You know, it's the- like baseball stats times a million <laughs> times 800 years. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Anna Piperato. She's now an especially proud citizen of the Lupa neighborhood in Siena. They finally won the city's legendary Palio horse race last year. Now, if anybody's never seen the Palio, it's quite easy just to go on YouTube and, and, yes. and Google it. Or we have the actual race that we filmed while we were in town on our website, mm-hmm. and you can find that in our show details. But it is a breathtaking race, and it seems like there's more than just one winner. And I learned that yes. only one neighborhood gets to win, but... If your rival neighborhood loses, that's a sort of a a weird little victory for your neighborhood. So the day after the 2nd of July Palio, so on the the 3rd of July, we had our victory parade throughout the entire city. And the Panther District welcomed us with a huge lunch. They gave us this huge party because their enemy, the Eagle, became the grandmother. So they thanked us. They did not win the Palio, but their enemy became the grandmother. So their rival, Mm -hmm. it would be like uh, we have the... Yankees, Red Sox. That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. if you could beat them, they would throw you a party. Exactly. What is it physically? It's called the palio, but yes. what is the palio? The palio is a silk banner. Palio comes from palium, uh, Latin for silk, uh-huh. and the original prize was a bolt of silk. Now they are painted banners, and the July palio is, is painted by a Sienese artist, and the August palio is painted by an international artist. And it, it's all about uh, celebrating the Virgin the Mary? The Virgin Mary. She's always front and center. The races are always dedicated to her, and that's why if the horse wins without a jockey, it's even better because the spirit of the Virgin Mary was coursing through its veins. There was a lot of memorable images for me last year at the Mm, Palio, but mm. one of the most, like, just timeless, it was just like, it was like otherworldly, was to be in the Siena Cathedral with Uh, all the neighborhoods packed there, uh, all the banners, all the drums, all the the faces, and then the Palio, the the banner was floating up in front by Uh, the high altar. Yes. And I just thought, this is a remarkable experience just to behold. Yes, and and it doesn't matter your religion at all. It's all about the experience. And that particular August was very special because we had not one but two banners inside. And of course, before the Palio race, on the day of the race, uh, the jockey is blessed. But the first thing to be blessed is the horse. And I don't know if she or it is Catholic, but she kisses the host. And the priest says to her, Vai e torna vincitrice. Go and return victorious. It works one out of ten times. We, we actually, I actually witnessed that <laughs> yes. in a different neighborhood. In front of the church, the whole neighborhood had gathered, and the priest was yes. there, and they blessed the horse. Yes. And it was, uh, 
And nobody Again, claps after. It's it was, a very it was, solemn moment. It was moment. solemn. It was very serious. And in some ways, it feels like this is a medieval tradition that survives into the modern world. And it's Siena's kind of private ritual. Yes. What do you make of that? Is it, Where are the roots of this? Why is it such a big deal in Siena? As a tourist, you kind of go, wow, yeah. that's just quite a spectacle. And then the Christia, they do this twice each summer, <laughs> and they do it every year. Yes. And, and my friend likes to joke, in Siena, you're born, there's the polio. And then you die. Yes. I mean, it's that big a deal for a lot of people. It is. Well, I mean, there there were many pali, which are just races, uh, basically, all throughout Italy. So you have the palio of Siena, of Ferrara, of Asti. These are all 13th century races. Uh, you have more modern palio races. But the idea is it's a way to bring the people together. There are medieval festivals that go back uh, some 800 years. But the Palio of Siena is very special because it never stopped. Other races stopped for a period of 100, 200, mm-hmm. 500 years. Some Pali are new under Mussolini under when he was trying to revive this idea of Italic pride. He instated mm-hmm. new Palio races. But Siena's Palio is the only one that is uninterrupted from the 13th century. It has evolved. It's gone from four races a year down to two. They used to run around the city. Now they run in the Piazza del Campo, the center square of Siena. But it hasn't stopped. And so the districts of Siena are very important because not they're not just areas of the city, but they are part of each person's individual identity. Mm-hmm. And you're a, you're a newcomer. How long have you lived in Siena? Uh, just since 2010. Are you accepted? Are you part of the, the, yes, the scene? Yes, I've, I've been baptized into the Contrada. It's a lay baptism, but uh-huh. done by the president of the Contrada. Um, so during the party, you're, you're in there with all the chaos oh, uh, yes. accepted. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Palio in Siena with a Sienese guide and friend, Anna Piperato. And Anna's particularly happy today because last year, her neighborhood went from being the perpetual loser to Capotti, winning not one but both Palio races yes. in the same year. Now, if you're a tourist, a traveler, mm. you can look on your calendar and the Siena Palio happens twice a year. I have never been there until this last year. I was impressed at how realistic it is for a traveler to be part of the fun. Yes. The big challenge is having a bed for the night because the city's yes. packed out. <laughs> but you can do that if you book it long in advance. You could also side trip in from Florence. Yes. There's no real tickets to worry about, is there? No, you just have to make sure that you line up behind the Piazza del Campo to get in, in what I like to call your human zit experience, when you kind of get pinged into the Piazza del Campo. It's free. You just have to remember that you stay there. And this is a race. This is very important. This is not for tourists, as some other Palio races are. This is for the Sini. So please come in, enjoy, take pictures. But when the cannon goes off, when the horses come out, you put your cameras away, you get off your boyfriend's shoulders, and you watch. And you are part of it. And then once the race has been won, please stay out of the way, because this is real life. So <laughs> I get the sense of and that. And then you can go to the church and help celebrate. Then you can go to Contrada and have all the vino you want and help celebrate. And those neighborhood banquets that oh, happen yes. leading up are just amazing. Yeah. I remember looking out my hotel window, and one part of the day they were setting it up. Mm-hmm. Another part of the day it was just packed with a thousand people, it seemed like. And then they cleaned it up, yep. and then the next morning it was like it never happened. And we all do that. Everyone helps out. After the race, I remember, for me, quite an emotional, beautiful moment. Uh, The the party was raging in your neighborhood, the She-Wolf neighborhood. I was on the the, the square, Il Campo, and it was empty, and that venerable bell tower was Mm. just rocketing high into the sky. And I was just sitting there in the bleachers at that scene of so much pandemonium just a couple hours earlier, Mm -hmm. just marveling at the power of that tradition and, and the energy that the city expends on this ritual. And the clay was all brought in to make the track, and that'll Mm -hmm. have to be trucked away in the next day. 
and it was silence. And I was just pondering the palio and siena and pride mm. and heritage. If you were sitting there on that balcony, looking out over the empty campo, thinking of what happened that day, what would go through your mind? Gosh, well, since our victory, I've done it many times with a big smile on my face, but I've also done it after horrible defeats. But you do think of it's something so much bigger than you. And especially as an American, we have many wonderful traditions here, but something that goes back to the 13th century. 800 years almost. Wow. And something that is so real, as you say, it is real. This is not something that's put on for tourists. Yes, we need the money for the city of Siena. Please bring us your money. But it is something that is so much it's so much bigger than any one person. And the Contrada itself is bigger than any one person. And after we had our victory parade, we also brought the Palio to the cemetery so that those who could not witness mm-hmm. this victory were a part of it. Beautiful. That is heritage. That is culture. That's today. That's today. Anna Piperato, thank you so much for uh, giving us a better insight into Siena's glorious, chaotic, and amazing palio. Grazie mille. Viva Siena e viva la lupa. La lupa, the she-wolf neighborhood. (laughs) There are lots of tired old jokes about British cuisine. But the truth is, England has a livelier food scene than ever and much of it relates to Britain's colonial heritage. A legacy of the empire upon which the sun never set? You can taste it in the variety of chutneys. Originally from India, chutney is a staple condiment in England. On a recent visit to York, I enjoyed a lesson from my tour guide, Tom Wright. He explained to me how chutney is freedom in a jar. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. I've been in England for about 24 hours, and I'm uh, with my friend Tom Wright. Hello there. Tom's a student here, Hi, a history I student. I am indeed, I am. He is my guide, and we're just having a quick bite to eat in a cool restaurant, and we were eating this plate. This is a lunch plate for two, and I was just commenting on the chutney, and I was asking Tom, what do you do with chutney? Is it like mustard? Do you put it on bread? Is it measured for the different ingredients or whatever? And Tom was telling me a little bit about chutneys. Well, absolutely. You've got to try and make sure you get the right chutney for the right cheese. Chutney can be made out of all sorts of things, different vegetables, different fruits. It can be spicy, it can be sweet, it can be bitter. Now, this one is a little bit spicy, mm, isn't it? It's, 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 it's peppery. It's delicious. And um, mm, it's not sweet, it's just, it's right. And, and you get a whole line of them in the grocery store. Oh, absolutely. You go to the better shops and you can find half an aisle dedicated to different types of chutney. You've got to get the right one to go with the right meats. If you go and buy a chutney in a shop, spend a good five or ten minutes. Because the right one will complement it perfectly. So now, do you put chutney on something or on the side or do you use it like mustard on the See. bread? Uh, so you can put it anywhere. You can put it on the side. You can put it on your piece of meat or cheese. You can spread it on your bread. Do anything you like. It's freedom. Freedom. Freedom in a jar. Freedom in a jar. That's Chutney, and thank you, Tom. Thank you. Happy travels. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Toronto for their help this week. When you're traveling, you can find out when other stations air travel with Rick Steves. Look online for a link to our affiliate listings at ricksteves.com slash radio.